You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If you don't pay for a product, you do become the product. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello there, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at a plan congressional Democrats are cooking up for Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. I've got the story of a clever technique police officers are using to prevent being live-streamed. And later in the show, my interview with Amish Devatya from Baffle on whether it's time for a national privacy referendum. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, let's dig into uh, some stories. What do you got going on this week? So my story comes from the website protocol.com, and it is about congressional Democrats' plan to limit Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So this was a bill that was introduced in the Senate by Senators Warner, Hirono, and Klobuchar, sort of spanning the ideological spectrum of congressional Democrats. Uh, Senator Hirono is one of the more progressive members. Klobuchar is sort of in the middle, and Senator Warner, at least among Democrats, is on the more conservative side. Uh, and they introduced a comprehensive bill called the Safe Tech Act, which I assume is an acronym <laughs> Count on it. <laughs> yes, I was not able to, to figure out what that acronym stood for right, right. by press time today. <laughs> so this bill makes a number of small but significant changes to Section 230. Just by, by way of background, I know we've talked about this on this podcast and, and other podcasts, but Section 230 is the provision that shields publishers of content from legal liability for what users post on their platforms. Mm -hmm. So what this bill would do is provide that online platforms wouldn't be able to claim that immunity for violations of federal or state civil rights laws, antitrust laws, cyber stalking laws, human rights laws, or civil actions regarding a wrongful death. So those are a bunch of a very interesting carve-outs. And perhaps the most interesting provision in this bill, it changes the type of content that would be subject to this immunity. So what the language of the act says now is that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information, uh, emphasizing that word, provided by another information content provider 
This hmm. bill would replace that word information with speech. And what the purpose of that is, is to avoid shielding these companies when you know people, for example, use social media sites to facilitate the sale of guns. That's not hmm. speech per se. I mean, that's facilitating it's commerce. This- it is, yeah, and potentially facilitating an illegal sale. So okay. they would be held liable for that under this revised piece of legislation. One of the prospects uh, of this bill, my general caveat, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> when we're talking about anything related to Congress is always bet on inaction as opposed to action. <laughs> right. I think this is the starting point for what could be the negotiation around a more comprehensive piece of Section 230 reform. You know, I think one of the things we've talked about is how each political party has its own problems with Section 230. So the progressive side, represented by the authors of this bill, think that these platforms don't do enough to restrict content. They think that they're facilitating harmful conduct. We talked about the illegal sale of firearms, but all other types of illegal content. They believe that advertisers aren't facing proper restrictions. So there was an incident where one advertisement that was posted on Facebook had racist undertones that Mm. potentially could have violated, the way it was uh, posted could have violated federal civil rights laws. That would no longer be subject to a liability shield if this bill were to pass. So that's sort of the progressive Democratic critique. The Republican Hmm. critique is that these companies have have too much power to restrict content. They are biased against political conservatives. They're shutting down free speech and they should be held liable for these content moderation decisions. And so there's this conservative pushback against Section 230 as well. So I think the best way to look at this piece of legislation is this is sort of the opening bid on the part of the Democrats. This is what we would like to do to curtail the scope of Section 230. And, you know, maybe we're, we're willing to hear what the Republicans want to do and maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle. So that's my, my general uh, perspective on this. Help me understand here, to grossly oversimplify this, is it that the the Democrats uh, have their dander up over what folks can leave up and the, the Republicans are upset about what the platforms might take down? In an extremely general sense, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, we can see that reflected in the political dialogue over the past several years. I mean, Democrats have talked about how Social media sites haven't done a sufficient job policing false information, abusive information, abusive practices. And Republicans have complained about deplatforming, cancel culture, taking President Trump off of Twitter, silencing conservative speech, uh, you know, using algorithms to suppress conservative stories like the one uh, during the election season about Hunter Biden. So I think it is reflective Hmm. of their general critiques of, of the law. Does that have anything to do with Section 230, though? I mean, a a platform deciding to pull something off, that's different than what my understanding of 230, which is that it shields them from the things that might be posted. Yeah, the critique, to be honest, doesn't really make much sense. In fact, if Section 230 were curtailed, then these platforms would certainly take down far more content than they already do because they'd be incessantly concerned about being sued. Mm -hmm. I think the critique is more kind of a a gut Trumpian critique saying it's not fair that these people are being uh, shielded from liability when they're also silencing our voices and they're upsetting us. So we want them to be able to be sued. I mean, I think that that's kind of the nature of it. Sort of a both sides sort of thing. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's certainly a legitimate critique you could make about content moderation practices and whether it is good policy on the part of these platforms to limit certain types of speech. But I agree with you that it doesn't, at least in my understanding, actually relate too much to Section 230, whereas this bill really would make substantial changes to Section 230, for for better or worse. Hmm. Where does it go from here? So my guess is that this will lead to a series of committee hearings. The Senate is now controlled by Democrats. You know, uh, Senator Warner is now the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So, you know, this is the type of thing where I would expect to see at least informational hearings on this legislation, testimony from experts, including representatives of the tech companies. You know, we know that particularly Twitter and Facebook have been more open about potentially reforming Section 230. So I'd be interested to see if they drag Zuckerberg back up on Capitol Hill to get his take on this. And then we're still a long way from this type of thing being enacted into law. It has to go through the the sausage making of legislation and You know, if I put on my crystal ball, I I still doubt that this bill, even, you know, in a slightly modified form would become law, at least in this session of Congress. But I suppose you never know. But this is just the first step. (laughs) And it's sort of the opening salvo in laying out what the Democratic priorities are as it relates to Section 230. Mm hmm. I appreciate your your learned cynicism when it comes to this. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I feel like I'm too cynical and then I watch, you know, five minutes of C-SPAN and realize maybe I'm not cynical enough. So, right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting story. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, as always. My story this week is weird. It's uh, kind great, of de- is what it is. Kind of, <laughs> kind of delightfully weird. Uh, this is a particular telling of this story comes from uh, Vice News written by Dexter Thomas. Let me lay out what happened here. There's a gentleman by the name of Senate Devermont, who um, is a Los Angeles area activist. Uh, seems like a, perhaps a bit of a gadfly when it comes to um, covering the police. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a, you know, descriptive way, <laughs> as yes. opposed to a judgmental way. But he was uh, went into the police station to uh, request some information about some interaction that he'd had with a police officer, and uh, while he was interacting with the uh, police officer who was helping him with his requests, uh, the police officer noticed that uh, Mr. Devermont was live streaming their interaction. Now, Ben, as we know, it is uh, well within a citizen's right to film the police while they're working, while they're doing in the course of their their interactions. That is something that we're allowed to do. It's protected, right? Yes, Absolutely. So this gentleman is uh, live streaming the police officer, and the police officer is not happy about that. Officer uh, Billy Fair, Sergeant uh, Billy Fair, uh, is the officer, and uh, he asks how many people are watching this, and uh, Devermont replies, enough. Devermont has uh, about 300,000 followers on Instagram, so a sizable audience. So Sergeant Fair pulls out his personal cell phone, plays with it a little bit, and starts playing some music. Yeah, it seems like he's searching through his his iTunes library and trying to find the perfect song for the situation. <laughs> and uh, he comes up with Santeria by Sublime. So first of all, uh, shame on you for getting that song in my head. Um, <laughs> that's going to last for several days, and I apologize to our listeners because... Uh, now we've just done it to you. Right. Uh, but, but the reason he's playing this music, uh, as the article says, is not just uh, his love of 90s stoner music. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he is trying to get Instagram to take this video down because of a copyright violation. Right. So his theory is that if he plays copyrighted music in the background, that will trigger Instagram's content filters to take this entire video down. Right. He's trying to kind of subvert the system. And, you know, by, by playing a song that's subject to copyright restrictions, then the video by this activist would not make it on, on Instagram. Right. There are a couple of problems with his theory. First and foremost, Instagram's terms and procedures changed last year. And they're more, I, I think the revised procedures allow playing of songs to a, to a greater extent, as long as there's some video element to it. And the purpose of the video is not to simply play copyrighted music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Instagram is not going to take it down. And I'm not sure that this law enforcement officer was aware of that policy because he kind of seemed to think, uh, with a little smirk on his face, that he had found this the secret solution to this activist taking videos. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's that's one problem. The other problem is this video has now been up for. Let's see. When was this posted? Uh, it, it's it's been up for a while. Meaning Instagram content moderation. You know whatever artificial intelligence they use for that didn't take it down. And now this article has been out there. You know, it's been public. I guess this was taken February 5th, so about five days ago as as we're recording this. And the music still hasn't been taken down. Uh, So just because he plays licensed music, that didn't actually cause Instagram to take down the video. But it was a nice try. I'll give him credit for that. (laughs) Well, and evidently that he wasn't the only one to do it. Mr. Devermont, uh, the activist here, had another case that he had filmed an officer and the officer was uh, blasting the song In My Life by the Beatles. And of course, the Beatles are famous for being uh, right on top of things when it comes to having their their music taken down. Yes, although somehow they let their entire catalog get purchased by Michael Jackson. But I guess that's a story for a different podcast. <laughs> so I guess this tactic is making its way around police officers and they're trying this and if nothing else it's annoying to try to have an interaction with a police officer who's on duty and the police officer just starts blasting loud music because they they don't appreciate what you're doing uh that seems uh uh, i don't know (laughs) Not nice. Yeah, I mean, the the law enforcement (laughs) officer was being kind of intentionally dismissive. And when he started Mm -hmm. playing the music in the video, the activist kept saying, like, hey, I want to talk to you about this. And the guy wouldn't respond. And he was like, I can't hear you, of course, because this loud copyrighted music was playing. Yeah. But I, I don't think, you know, besides potentially annoying this videographer who seems to film a lot of interactions with law enforcement, mm-hmm. I don't think this will have any actual impact because of Instagram's actual content moderation procedures, which would probably not lead to this video being taken down. So I think law enforcement in this case is kind of being too clever by a half in, in trying yeah. to use this tactic. I do remember a case a few years ago where someone had posted a a video of their, I think it was a a toddler who was dancing to a a song by Prince that was playing in the background. And Prince had the song, had the video taken down off of YouTube, I think it was. And, you know, got some some blowback from that of people saying, really, Prince, really? I mean, you know, it's a kid's a toddler who's who's moved to dance by your music and you're, you can't, you know. (laughs) So it seems as though the platforms are, kind of moderating their view on this. And and I think also, as time goes on, a lot of the rights holders are moderating their view and they're seeing that 
you know, there's promotional value to this. And you don't want to just be seen as the bad guy who, who you know, takes everything down no matter right. what. It, it's sort of shooting yourself in the foot. It's interesting here that um, the Beverly Hills uh, Police Department did email a statement to the folks at Vice. And, and uh, they said, the playing of music while accepting a complaint or answering questions is not a procedure that has been recommended by Beverly Hills Police Command staff. And the videos are currently under review. As well, they should be. <laughs> uh, that is such a funny statement because it's saying absolutely nothing and just like using this passive voice. Whereas, right, you know, <laughs> this is not allowed by whomever, uh, and and yeah. we're looking into it. Mistakes were made. Yeah, uh, mistakes were made by by some. Not going to say yeah. who, but uh, yeah, you know. So they are are trying to keep a, a good PR angle here. Yeah, you know, I think you're right that. The And this story obviously doesn't really relate to the artists themselves. I have no idea uh, if Sublime even still exists or uh, how carefully they protect their copyrighted music material. But yeah, I mean, I think from, uh, to make a general point, from the artist's perspective, it's not worth the bad publicity to go crazy and trying to uh, take your music down from platforms when they're used incidentally. And, you know, so I think they they are careful about that. But in terms of this being a law enforcement tactic, I don't think it's going to prove to be an especially effective tactic in preventing people from obtaining body camera footage or inhibiting people's First Amendment rights to film law enforcement interactions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like I said at the outset, it's a weird one. But but such a great story. Cracked me up. <laughs> All right. Well, again, it's from the folks over at Vice, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in and leave a message. Our number is 410-618-3720. You can also send us an email to caveat at com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Amis Devatia from Baffle, and uh, he has the notion that it may be time for a national privacy referendum. Here's my conversation with Amish Devatia. It's amazing how privacy suddenly become almost a fundamental right, right? I'm sure you saw all the outrage very recently about WhatsApp changing its policies or attempting to change its policies and the the absolute backlash that they received. So just a, a simple example of how everybody thinks that privacy is their God-given right and it has to be protected at all times. I mean, do you think that this is sort of a people catching up, waking up? I mean, it seems like certainly for the past few years, we've seen, when I think about social networks, that they've been running rampant, sort of gathering up all of our information willy-nilly. 
Yes, that's true. And I think, you know, there's various uh, adages used for this, but I think one of them that actually rings true in this case is if you don't pay for a product, you do become the product. So the fact that you don't pay for a social networking service means that whatever you are doing is going to be monetized by that social network or even a commercial entity if it's just uh, even one of your vendors, um, somebody you buy things from. So it, it is definitely something that is becoming very central to how people do business. And it's also becoming very important for them to realize that uh, they are uh, being used as, um, as an asset. Nothing is free. Yeah, we've had uh, GDPR come to the European Union. And uh, here in the U.S., California has had the CPRA. Where do you think we're headed next? Do you think we might see uh, something on a national level here in the U.S.? Uh, absolutely. I think we are going to see something at a national level. The timing of, of that is really dependent on a, a lot of other things that are going on, as we all know, and from a political perspective. But as I'm sure you know well, there's more than 30 bills that have been introduced uh, in Congress, and um, they're being actively debated, or they will be actively debated uh, over the course of this year. If anything, we are a little bit late in, in getting there. I think the expectation was that this would happen a lot earlier. What about the, the big players in the space? I'm thinking about uh, organizations like Facebook and, and Google. Again, some of these big social networks and, and platforms that are in the business of gathering up this data. It seems to me like you know they're not going to change their ways easily. They're gonna, there's going to be a lot of pushback from them, and they're large companies who can pay for a lot of good lawyers. That is true, but I think they also understand that there is two sides to this equation, right? While the fact that they have all of that data is a wonderful asset, they understand the liability aspect of it. And of course, compliance regulations are making it more of a monetary issue as far as finding them and all of that. But I think they really understand that there is a moral responsibility. And more importantly, if they do the wrong thing, case in point, you know, all WhatsApp was trying to do is share information with Facebook. There's a massive backlash. Uh, they understand that they have that responsibility. So I'm not sure if they're going to push back as hard. I think what they will push on is to make it more homogenous across the country uh, so that they don't have to worry about every state trying to create their own regulation. So I think they'll be supportive of that effort to make it more at a national level. Now, do you suppose we could see something on a, on a global scale? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how... You know, we have international standards for things like human rights, and many nations sign on to them and agree with them. Not everyone does, but you know, those are things that have been worked on over the years, and, and they're, they're standards when it comes to those sorts of things. Is there a possibility that we could see global standards when it comes to online privacy? I think we will, but one step at a time, right? I think every nation still is grappling with this. Um, there's only a few that have, uh, obviously GDPR is probably the furthest along as far as geographical impact is concerned. It's all across um, the EU. Uh, Brazil has has the regulation, so does Singapore and uh, Australia and a couple other countries. There's a lot of them that are still underway, right? India is still underway. US is absolutely still underway. So I think it will start happening and it will start becoming pervasive, but uh, the global standard is definitely a ways away in my mind. 
What about this notion of, of perhaps having a, some sort of national privacy referendum? And is that is that a possibility? Is is that a practical thing that could happen? I think it is absolutely practical because um, if the laws are more homogenized and the laws are easier to understand, it becomes easier to to enforce them. And if it becomes easier to enforce them, it also becomes easier to adopt them from a technology perspective, right? Technology vendors are looking to do as much as possible to protect the data, but they also want to make sure they don't have to do custom implementation based on the geography. So I think it does make it easier for them to provide the support that's needed to technology companies trying to adopt uh, these regulations. And it also makes it easier for enforcement if it is if it is at a national level. How do you respond to the argument that regulations like these may be easier for the larger companies to implement? Again, they have the resources to do so, but it could be a barrier for smaller companies who want to enter the space. These regulatory standards could be burdensome to them. I think on the face of it, it will appear like that, but that's exactly where the process of actually enacting them will play out. I mean, you've just looked at what's happening with California, right? CPRA has been enacted, but it won't go into effect until 2023. So it is still two years out. So it gives enough time for both the, the legislative process and the judicial process to negotiate it so that they can come up with a with a the right set of requirements that can be very, I wouldn't say easily implemented, but implemented without a lot of pain. Also, we have an entire ecosystem of vendors, right? Security vendors, privacy vendors who are absolutely in the middle of innovating to make sure that they can make it easier. Yeah, you know, that's that's a really interesting aspect of this. Not long ago, I saw a story about um, someone who was putting together uh, some sort of uh, system, I believe it was using artificial intelligence or machine learning, you know, something like that to to basically go through a lot of the EULAs, you know, the end user license agreements for these different platforms to try to pull out what they really meant and, and, and put it in terms that uh, people could understand. Um, and I thought that was a fascinating use of technology to to try to streamline this, to give people a better understanding so they know what they're up against. But what sort of ways do you think technology could do that, could, could help with implementation and, and streamlining and enforcement of all of these privacy standards that we may, may see coming? Sure. So it always starts with data discovery first, right? What is sensitive data? And again, the regulations are doing a good job of defining what is considered sensitive data from an individual's perspective. But the tools have to come in and actually detect where that sensitive data is sitting because most companies don't even realize where it is. So once you discover that particular data and you classify it as sensitive, that's when the policy infrastructure kicks in as to what do you do with that. So, for example, in some cases, you may want to just completely mask that data to be never used again, like a social security number. Or you may want to protect it in such a way that it can be processed downstream. So once that has happened, so think of it as a pipeline. So discovery, classification, and then storage. So you have to store it in a protected manner. And then finally, processing. So in the last stage, it is possible now with technologies known as privacy-enhanced computation or privacy-preserving analytics to actually process that data downstream, 
without revealing the contents of that actual record or, or actual information. So that's how the technology industry or the ecosystem is actually addressing that. To be able to do this, to be able to collect data, but still be responsible about it. And this is what every company will have access to, especially when they go into cloud infrastructure. So it will really level the playing field and it will not be un unfairly tilted towards the larger companies who can adopt these regulations and the smaller companies cannot. Yeah, that's, that was actually, you lead to my next question, which is, uh, you know, is this an opportunity for companies to provide these sorts of services so that folks can have turnkey ways to make sure that they are meeting the, the requirements of the regulations and also doing right by their customers? I think there is. And I, I think this is where cloud providers play a very big role, right? Because of the fact that uh, the, again, um, much like the laws have to be homogenized. The infrastructure needs to be homogenized as well so that these tools can work seamlessly. And that is well underway. There will be some a burden to that. I don't think uh, a small doctor's office will be able to automatically comply just because uh, they can buy some software and put it on their server. They may have to go to a service provider's cloud, which makes it easier for them to adopt these tools. Uh, the good news is, given the pandemic, a lot of these uh, call it data transformation and cloud migration has actually been accelerated by it. And that is an opportunity to actually adopt these new tools and comply in the process to make sure they can win their customers' trust. That's really what it's all about at the end, right? Privacy is about winning the customer's trust. Yeah, it seems to me like by prompting people to move to things like cloud services, I mean, you know, you may get them to come to cloud services to meet these regulatory uh, standards and so forth. But at the same time, in doing so, a whole lot of other things about their systems are going to be better. You know, they're going to be able to take advantage of some of the security things and the backup things, all, all those sorts of things that come with moving things to the cloud. And this gives them uh, the impetus to do so, to stop lagging, to stop putting it off. Exactly. It is all part of that overall digital transformation theme, which was already underway, the pandemic just accelerated it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I just wanted to emphasize the fact that, you know, privacy has suddenly become very, very personal. Every individual considers that a right more than anything else. And it is time for the government or the legislation to actually catch up and make sure that they enact the right kind of security laws. Security laws are best enacted at a centralized level because it, it makes an it makes it easy to enact them. But enforcement will have to be local. So the states will have to step up to enforce them. And I think that's where we'll achieve this happy medium where consumers are willing to share their data, knowing fully well that the, the data collectors will be very, very responsible about them. Because if they're not, their business will be adversely affected. It's no longer security and as a consequence, privacy is not just a necessary evil, right? It's a competitive differentiator. If you take care of your data, you will get more business from your customers. All right, Ben, what do you think? Can I get on my soapbox for just a minute? Absolutely. So first of all, uh, I certainly thank the guest. It was a provocative interview. I thought it was really interesting. I am 
firmly against national referenda. I'm largely mm. against state referenda, but particularly well, you're, a, you're a California boy, so uh, you, you know it. You know of what you speak, right? I, I do know of what I speak, and it is certainly not a pleasant voting experience to get a you know 500 page handbook explaining what these propositions mean, <laughs> uh, where no layperson could possibly understand what they're voting on. You know, national referenda. First of all, we don't have a national voting system in this country. There are no national elections. They're all administered at the state level. The only national office is the office of the president, and that's determined through the Electoral College, which is done at the state level. So we just don't have that infrastructure in place to even have that referendum. More broadly, the reason we elect people to make decisions for us is we can't all be experts on the policy issues uh, of the time. And we elect representatives to gain expertise for us and make these decisions on our behalf. And if we're not happy with their decisions, we can replace them. What we've seen in California is they try and get the public to vote on things where the public might not have preconceived views on the subject, but it's very difficult for the public to accurately understand what they're voting on. And I think the same danger would be present if we had a national referendum on privacy legislation. Your interviewee tried to say, well, you know, this would simplify things because companies wouldn't have to go state by state to figure out what they're... kind of laws they'd have to comply with. But leaving it up to the public just creates all of these new dangers. Uh, we saw mm-hmm. in California last year when there was a referendum making technical corrections to the California Consumer Privacy Act. And it was a disaster. I mean, I think we talked about it on this podcast. The experts in the field, the activists on either side, had a hard time wrapping their head around what the proposition would actually do, let alone what that meant to the layperson who doesn't know how to operate a smartphone. So that's my soapbox. I'm against national referenda. It's an interesting idea. Uh, I've seen it proposed in other contexts in the past, but not my cup of tea. Yeah. So the 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 way you would propose coming at this is uh, contact your representative, let them know that... Uh, some sort of national legislation is something you'd support and, and pressure them that way? Absolutely. Or, you know, part of activism is organizing. It's not just contacting your legislator, but, you know, getting a group of, of interest groups together, a group of similarly minded activists and coming up with pressure campaigns, you know, testifying in front of your members of Congress, doing what you can at the state legislature. That's the kind of tough work that, that makes democracies tick. I, I think that's preferable than having a national national referendum on an issue that's, even if it were simplified, is still relatively complex. Right. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Amish Devatia from Baffle for joining us. Uh, as Ben said, certainly a provocative idea and, uh, and food for thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. 
With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>